Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. If you've been in the church the last few weeks, you may have noticed that something is different today. Depending on whether you are more affected by the visual or the auditory, you may have noticed the color change from green to purple or the setting of the mass change from our usual Sunday setting to a different tone. Perhaps you are one who is tuned to what is different so much as what, it, not so much to what's different as what's missing. Noting that we didn't sing the Gloria, the glory be to God in the highest this morning. You may have noticed the lack of Alleluia being sung right before the gospel there. And each of these is an external sign that something here has taken a turn. And what has changed is that we've left the season of Epiphany and entered that of Septuagesimatide, quite a mouthful. So perhaps you'd just rather call it by its more simple name, Pre-Lent. Today on Septuagesima, which by the way means 70 in Latin, because we are about 63 days before Easter, uh, which is the seventh decade of days, similar to why this is the 21st century. Well, anyway, for this week and the next two before Ash Wednesday, everything is already looking nearly like Lent here at church. To many, it may seem rather odd that we're apparently preparing for a few weeks for Lent, a time which itself is a preparation for Holy Week and the resurrection of our Lord at Easter. Yet, if you're going to have a good Lenten preparation, the church recognizes that you need to prepare ahead of time so that you're ready to hit the ground running. Lent is seven weeks long. And right now, I'm sure that seems like a long time to you, but I bet you think that those last seven weeks since the beginning of the year have been a blitz. I certainly do. So it's gonna go by fast. Now, one might take today's parable to try and claim that maybe preparation and hard work aren't worth it. After all, it's clear that those who labored all day and those who labored just a few hours got the same pay. In fact, if you've been through Lent and Holy Week with the Advent before, then you've been to Easter Vigil, I hope. And you know there we re always read St. John Chrysostom's Paschal Homily that's based on this passage. And in that homily, St. John focuses on the hope contained in it, that whether we have labored but a little or a lot, our fair labor will be rewarded by our generous, loving, and good God. But today, reading the fuller context of that passage, we see Jesus's parable isn't so straightforward. In fact, there is one of Subdeacon Stephen's so-called uncomfortable binaries, because the parable concludes the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And Jesus goes on to say, many are called, but few are chosen. And I can't help but remind people every time we encounter this phrase that this is a figure of speech, a Hebrewism, that should be better heard by our modern English ears as all are called, but some are chosen. Now, if you prefer to go, maybe you just prefer to go with St. John's perspective. Sounds pretty good, right? Everybody's going to turn out okay no matter when you get started. But I'm sorry to tell you that you'll probably be disappointed to hear that St. John has another extant sermon on this passage. And in fact, he gets into this uncomfortable binary in that parable. He says that this parable is talking about how in our present life, 
people are called to a life in God at different ages. But that if we let envy come into our hearts, that some find the Lord on their deathbed, while others have spent an entire life faithful to God, that God shows mercy on both. And that if we have that envy, we end up no better than the prodigal son's brother who was envious, rather than ready to rejoice, as his father did, at the prodigal's return. And let us also recall the parable of the virgins and their oil lamps. What were they doing? They were waiting, preparing for the bridegroom. Yet some had prepared well, and others did not. And what happened? Those who had not prepared well had to leave in the middle of the waiting, the preparing. So they had to leave in the middle of the preparing, and instead they didn't get to receive the joy. They got left out of it. Whereas those who prepared to prepare well, they entered into the wedding feast. So what I'm telling you is don't squander these next you know, couple of weeks, three weeks, because it's the key to having a good Lent. So what advice do I have you for your pre-preparation? And if you're curious and want to talk more about this, of course, be happy to talk more. But here are a few ideas. Well, let's first think about and talk about some of the most obvious things that people think about when they think about Lent. Probably the first is fasting from food. That during the weekdays, we eat less food and we restrict the types of foods that we eat. If you've not done it before, figuring out your meal planning can be quite arduous. Depending on how attached you are to meat, and even if you've done it before, it can be quite a challenge. So this is a good time to start finding some Lenten recipes. Maybe you order your food online a few weeks ahead of time. You might need to go ahead and start thinking about what you're going to order differently during Lent. Maybe you can ask your fellow church members if you need some good ideas of what to cook. There's plenty of great Lenten food. But as important, if not more important, of course, is working on your heart, your mind, and soul. The food restriction is just there to make that part easier, to remind you that filling your belly with whatever you choose is not what matters in life, to remind you that God will provide you the food you need and also whatever you need life-wise, even if it isn't always what you want. It also calms our other passions. When you're a little hungry, uh, thinking and doing things uh, that we shouldn't do becomes a little bit harder. It allows us then to focus on the inner work we need to do. One thing we do during Lent is to refocus, perhaps reestablish and intensify, if possible, our prayer life. So start to think about how you will do that. And of course, don't go from zero to 60. Do something incremental to what you already do now. If that's not, nothing, do something. If you do something, maybe do a little more or something different. And many resources exist to help with this. And again, I'd be happy to guide you. We also focus on almsgiving. So how will you be giving more to those around you? Yes, of course, that might mean giving money to charities. But I also want you to just think about being a nicer person. Giving charity to others includes being nice to those in your home and at your workplace and that you encounter at the grocery store and those that cut in front of you on the interstate. So start thinking about how you will become that nicer person and how you will give to those around you. Now, all of that's important, but I also want to focus on a topic that for many of us is something that we did not experience in the other faith traditions that we've come from and one that many have questions about, and that's sacramental confession. Many will quote you rules uh, about how often to confess, and I will say the absolute minimum I've ever heard is once a year. 
And commonly, if only once a year, that's done sometime during Holy Week. But another traditional time in the West has been Shrove Tuesday. Now, you may be more familiar with that day being called Fat Tuesday or Mardi Gras, the day before Ash Wednesday. Now, Shrove Tuesday is the more Christian version of the day uh, than reveling in the streets. The word shrove is a form of the English word strive, which means to receive absolution for one's sins by way of confession and fulfilling a penance. Quite a bit packed into that little word shrive. Now, that makes it quite obvious that this is what folks did, at least at one point in our history. And I rather like that and would encourage you to adopt this practice. In our fast-paced modern world, where so many of you are working long hours and odd shifts just to make ends meet, have children to get to sleep, we know here at the Advent how challenging it is for people to come to church one night during the week, much less twice to both partake in Shrove Tuesday and Ash Wednesday. So our plan is that we'll have a Shrove Sunday luncheon, which will provide time for people who would like to do sacramental confession. And we'll combine that with another Shrove Tuesday tradition, pancakes. Pancakes being the perfect side dish to the bacon that you need to eat up before Lent. And the other reason for the pancakes was that foods have been more restricted at various times, including dairy and eggs, and as they still do for our Eastern Rite brothers and sisters. That's really where the pancakes come from. But anyway, we had to get rid of all that stuff, so might as well clean out the fridge all at once. Now, confession, though, getting back to that, was viewed as part of these pre-preparations for Lent. It was a way to start the Lenten season off right, a way to start fresh. And that actually seems to make more sense than a Holy Week confession. And of course, both is better. But anyway, why do I suggest, as the church long has, starting Lent with confession? Well, first and foremost, perhaps I should be even clearer before we get there. Sacramental confession is not an option in the Christian life. Indeed, our Orthodox Church requires it. As your priest, I'm the guardian of the body and blood of Christ. And I am, by our rules and guidelines, required once in a while to remind the congregation as they come to communion that, with fear of God and faith and love, those who have prepared themselves through the act of confession, absolution, fasting, and praying may draw near. The church's words, not mine. Now, you certainly recognize that receiving the body and blood of Christ, communing with Christ himself, is the central and most important thing we do as Christians. So if the church is saying that not regularly confessing and receiving absolution is a barrier to accessing that fundamental thing, then confession and absolution must be so intimately tied to it that the two cannot exist apart from one another. And this is indeed the case. Confession is often likened to baptism. Both absolve us of our sins. Both give us access to communion. Both are a death to this world and a death to the old person within us. Both involve water. One ordinary water transformed into certain something extraordinary by blessing. And the other, the water of our tears, transformed into something extraordinary by our repentance. Tears of sorrow at our sins and also tears of joy at the recognition of the awesome, awesome grace of God. Both are a sign of the grace of God and his bottomless, endless mercy. So who wouldn't want to be a part of that? So why are we so reluctant to confess to the priest and receive absolution? I hope that most of it's because you've never experienced it. 
And when you haven't experienced something, it's easy to think you don't need it because you don't know what it's good for. And that's where I want to take a little additional time of our time, a little additional time today to tell you why it's not only important but necessary. One of the best places to start is that, again, this just isn't the church talking. The Bible tells us this is required. Now, first, I want to note that, of course, you can confess your sins to Jesus and ask for his forgiveness. And you, I hope, do that every, each and every day. That's important. And we certainly have faith in the mercy of God. If you were in some situation where you couldn't confess your sins to a priest, that God would fully forgive you. But this is not the normative practice of the church. After all, God himself established it to work this way. In the Old Testament, who atoned for the sins of the people? The priest did, right? Through God's deputization of that role. Of course, God is the only one that has the power to forgive sins, but he deputizes his agents in this world to do that for the people. And likewise, Jesus in the New Testament is the one that also deputizes the, the, that power. It says that Jesus says, right, that he was given authority on earth to forgive sins, which, as we mentioned, the Jews recognized as a power reserved to God alone. But when Jesus appears to the apostles after the resurrection, what does he say to them? The apostles who ordained the bishops as their successors throughout the ages and who bishops also further deputized this function to their presbyters. What did Jesus say? He said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you the apostles, forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. God is still the one who has the final authority to forgive, but he has given that power to his priesthood, just as he did in the Old Testament. Now, other examples include that St. Paul saying in 2 Corinthians 5.18, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, the apostles, the ministry of reconciliation. We hear in St. James, the early Christians confessed their sins to each other in church. And from other early sources, for example, the Didache, likely written before the Gospel of John, it says, confess your sins in church and do not go up to your prayer with an evil conscience. This is the way of life. On the Lord's day, gather together, break bread, and give thanks after confessing your transgressions so that your sacrifice may be pure. Maybe you want to say that perhaps that's just talking about the general confessions we make, despite there being other evidence that it means the people confess their sins publicly in front of the congregation at the time. And only later did private confession become the norm which made it more accessible to many and avoided compounding the sins of the penitent with the sins of others from a scandal and a lack of ability to forgive from what needed to be forgiven, especially as the church became legal. So let's hear some other early church voices here. This is from Hippolytus of Rome, who lived 170 to 236 AD, speaking of the ordination of bishops. And grant this your servant whom you have chosen for the episcopate the power to feed your holy flock and to serve without blame as your high priest, ministering night and day to propitiate unceasingly before your face and to offer to you the gifts of your holy church and by the spirit of the high priesthood to have the authority to forgive sins in accord with your command. 
or this from origin. A final method of forgiveness, albeit hard and laborious, is the remission of sins through penance. When the sinner does not shrink from declaring his sins to a priest of the Lord and from seeking medicine after the manner of him who say, I said to the Lord, I will accuse myself of my iniquity. So perhaps that is another reason that people shirk from confession because it is, as Origen noted, hard. It's in part hard because we think too highly of ourselves. But one of the most important aspects of confession that I have is reminding people that they are remarkably just like everybody else. We're all sinners. And that's why we declare each week before communion with St. Paul himself that we are not only sinners, but chief among them. It's hard because we are ashamed. But as St. John Chrysostom says in another place, he reminds us that we're ashamed about the wrong things. He says, do not be ashamed to enter again into the church. Be ashamed when you sin. Do not be ashamed when you repent. Pay attention to what the devil did to you. These are two things, sin and repentance. Sin is a wound. Repentance is a medicine. Just as there are for the body wounds and medicines, so for the soul are sins and repentance. However, sin has the shame and repentance possesses the courage. End of the quote. Confession shows a necessary humility about who we are. And too often, it is something we don't like to look at. But Christ forgives. And that's what the priest is there to tell you. Just as he is an image, I am an image of, the Christ, in, of Christ in the liturgy, I'm also an icon of Christ in confession. I'm there to tell you that, yes, what you've done is serious. It's hurting your relationship with God and your neighbor. But God's mercy is endless, and God loves you. And when we keep all this stuff to ourselves, we all too often begin to doubt that. And by confessing, I don't allow you to keep that delusion. You're forced to face the fact that, yes, God really, 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 really does love you. And I think that's a pretty wonderful experience. I find that going to confession is a lot like going to the gym. I dread it and dread it until I go and realize that after I'm done, darn, I feel awfully good right now. But it isn't that confession takes away our distress at our sin and replaces it with peace and comfort, although it does. It's that we see and experience new life, the life of Christ again, that rebirth we first experienced at our baptism, an opportunity to start fresh again. It is our darkness and the devil himself who is keeping you from the salvific sacrament that is given us by Christ himself. And I'll close by saying, again, I hope you'll partake of it this pre-Lent and start reborn and pre-prepared for an enriching Lenten season. And I'll close also with a few words from Sybil Harton's book, The Practice of Confession, Why, What, and How. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this is what confession does, giving us victory over our sins and our enfeebled selves, renewing our strength in the pursuit of goodness, increasing our interior light, bestowing upon us peace and happiness, and promising our perseverance. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Indeed, my brothers and sisters, glory to God for his compassionate and loving care. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent 
a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.